Open, outspoken, it's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Blake Williamson. Welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. In this episode, my new co-host, Dr. Tal Raviv, and I chat with Dr. Jennifer Lowe, a board-certified comprehensive ophthalmologist who has opened her own private practice in Miami. She discusses the process of opening her practice in a large metro area and the challenges she's faced over the last few years. The changing landscape for women in ophthalmology is also a topic, and her upcoming production, Rising Stars in Ophthalmology, is discussed as well. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in ophthalmology. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid, and I am so excited for our new co-host, Dr. Tal Raviv from New York, New York. We've been uh, rotating uh, co-hosts this season with the thought that every time we have a new co-host, they bring fresh ideas, fresh perspectives, and keeps things fun. And I know that Tal is absolutely going to be uh, what we need for this podcast. So Tal, thanks so much for joining us. How you doing, man? How's New York? It looks like uh, some of the storms from Ida we kind of sent up your way. Uh, you guys do okay up there with the with the winds and everything? Yeah, between Henry and Ida and watching the news of what was happening over uh, your, your place, uh, it's been crazy, but... Uh, we're just so used to just going with the punches and keeping it going. So happy to be working and happy that everyone's safe and that you're safe and uh, all is good for now. Fantastic. Fantastic. And you and I were talking about uh, show guests and, and the first person that you said was, uh, was Dr. Jennifer Lowe. So I thought maybe I'd leave it to you to, to introduce Dr. Lowe um, and, uh, and talk a little bit why you uh, chose to, to have her as our first guest on Off the Grid today. Blake, first, it's great being here as a guest host. You know, I've, I've, I think I met you about five years ago at uh, I think it was ACOS. I think you were just starting out. I think maybe even before you started, I met you there. And it's funny because I met Jen Lowe also at ACOS Deer Valley about, I would guess, 10 years ago or so. And I've been out about 20 years. So, you know, we sort of are, are you know, I don't know if I'm not more in the front end of my career, but we're sort of in that beginning part. And I think with interesting perspectives on all. Uh, and Jen is someone that uh, someone that everyone knows. You know, she's a cornea refractive cataract surgeon in her own practice that she started in Miami. Uh, low ophthalmology, which is super impressive, we'll talk about. And she's a constant presence at the AEO, ASCRS, ACOS, any meeting that you've heard. Jen has been there teaching, leading, uh, and she's also had leadership positions in many of these organizations like Cedars Aspens and uh, the Refractive Surgery Alliance. So I thought there's no one better to bring on here to hear her perspective of how she's done all this in the first 10 years uh, than, you know, than having Jen Lowe on. So Jen, we're happy to have you here. And I thought I'd start off by asking you, Jen, but let's start with the, the beginning. You know, something that makes you unique is that nowadays very few doctors are in private practice, let alone starting their own practice from scratch. And you did that. You were working in a few different practices before, and then you went out on your own. To bring us back to that day for people listening to this podcast who are thinking about doing this, what was in your mind that prompted you to do this? And then what were the steps you took? 
Well, first of all, thank you so much both for having me. I've always really enjoyed our friendships and, uh, you know, can't believe it's been as long as you said, tall, 10 years knowing you and you're right, five years knowing Blake and it's just sped by. Um, I also can't believe it's been 10 years since I finished residency. So that's also a big shock. Uh, and five years actually since I opened my practice. So it's it's funny you mention it and it's, it's really poignant that we're having this uh, podcast because just the other night, uh, Bill actually said to me, how old is your practice now? And I said, it's actually five years. Um, you know, I think if it hadn't been for COVID, I'm sure we would have celebrated, had some kind of like five-year party. But, you know, of course, because of COVID, I actually just forgot about it being five years already. So hopefully at some point we can actually celebrate. But it's, it's really uh, sped by. And, you know, going back to that moment, uh, I'm sure like many of our colleagues can can empathize with, you know, after you finish your training, you of course, want to get a job and, and, and you know a lot about, um, you know, medicine and ophthalmology, but you don't know necessarily a lot about pra practice or even life. Uh, so, of course, you get your first job and, and you learn a lot, right? And it's a good experience, hopefully. Uh, but and, and I went through all that, too. I went through a couple of different jobs, you know, learned a lot, but, you know, just never really felt satisfied where I was. And, and then also there were also personal issues, too. I wanted to be in a certain location uh, for my own personal uh, reasons and couldn't quite find the job that I really, really loved or that really worked for me. And it wasn't that there weren't good jobs available. I, I certainly was lucky and fortunate enough to have good contacts. And, you know, I interviewed at some places that I really liked after working for a few years and I actually liked my current job. But part of the reason was it was in Fort Lauderdale and I wanted to be in Miami. So even though I was actually having a good time in my current job, I had a lot of freedom. I didn't have any worries. There was no overhead. It was, it was actually really fun and I got a lot of surgery. So I have to say I liked it. There was nothing really wrong with it, but I wanted to be in a, in a certain ge geographic location. And I also knew I wanted to build something more for the future versus being more like a like a contract worker type thing where there was no real potential for, for buying in. Um, so that, that's basically what motivated me, you know, personal issues and then, and just this sort of, desire to forge my own path and see if I could do it. You know, and I think one of the tipping points um, that I often tell people is that I interviewed for a few jobs in the Miami area that I was interested in. They were all good jobs, but, you know, looking at the process to me was you had to work for a few years. And then after a few, two to three years, maybe you were potentially going to be offered the chance to buy in, but the buy-in was still quite expensive. When I was looking at the estimate of numbers, it wasn't a small amount. I mean, it was still in the know, high range that I realized, you know, instead of me putting in the sweat equity, then plus still paying cash uh, for something that may or may not happen, why don't I just take a chance on myself? So yes, it's going to take time. Yes, it's going to take money uh, to start my own practice. But at least at the end of the day, I'm taking a chance on myself versus taking a chance on someone else, which is essentially what I would be doing if I took a job with someone, there's still always that unknown uncertainty. Is it really going to work out with that person? Are you really going to be made partner? And then at the end of the day, if you if it doesn't work out, you usually have this non-compete that locks you out of a, a huge area from where you want to live. And again, I knew I was pretty locked in geographically where I wanted to be. So I, I, I thought, why not take a chance on myself? And you know, if it doesn't work out, if I fail, then I fail and I just find another job. <laughs> so that was sort of my my rationale and reasoning. And I, I'm very lucky to have a really good support group. I mean, obviously my husband has been so helpful. I really couldn't have done it without him. So I definitely acknowledge that, that the help of friends and family allowed me to pursue my dream. You know, I, I certainly respect people that don't have that support group. It's very, very hard to start a practice, um, but it is doable and it's really, really rewarding as, as I know you know as well, Tal, since you started your own <laughs> as well. That that makes me think. You know, you just mentioned your husband, Bill Trattler. Did, did did they interview you? How'd that interview go? And like, 
how did you decide not to, you know, join your family's practice and kind of, that'd be like me starting my own practice, even though I have family in my own town, you know, with the big practice, how did, how did that work? And, you know, did they try to recruit you or uh, how'd that go? No, actually, great question. Um, actually, no, they did not try to recruit me. There actually weren't any availabilities at the time. They are a really large practice. And um, ironically, at the time, there were really no openings. And I also didn't push it either. But yeah, I, I wanted to keep things like keep church and state separate. I felt that it would be better not I didn't want to be known as, oh, I'm only here in his practice because I'm married to him. And it's different, I think, in your situation, Blake, you're his son. I mean, that's a different relationship. That's a forever relationship, right? But we all know, you know, who knows what um, can happen. And I, I didn't want to have any extra stress uh, on, on the marriage or relationship or the work the work uh, situation. And I wanted to be able to forge something for myself and, and not have any, I don't know, you know, any other kind of influences. So I think ultimately it's been a good decision. I would have loved to work in, in some ways with him every day. We do get to operate together, which is great because we both go to an open access surgery center and we do operate on the same day. So that's been a really good hybrid. But I have to say I'm pretty independent and I think I'm kind of glad that, you know, I get to make my own decisions now. <laughs> things. It's interesting is what you said is, you know, coming back to where you wanted to be. And I think that I keep seeing that happen. People, you know, go away for a job, but if they're really connected to a certain geographic area, they're going to want it. The gravity just brings them back there. And so if there was no opportunity, you just went and made it. But that's an important point. You were lucky to know where you wanted to be. I, you know, I knew I wanted to be in New York and that helped me. There were really no other choices. You know, it, it was just either a bad job or move somewhere else. And that's what led me to start my own practice. So Jen, now that you decided to practice, what would you give our you know, listeners, you know, top three things, you know, what, what steps do they take or what do they research or what do they do? What are the first couple, you know, concrete things they can do to, to do this? Or just start their own practice. Well, I, I think that, um, like you said, Tal, it's a really good point. You have to know where you want to go. Of course, you don't want to start a practice and then three years later decide you don't like the geographic location. So I think you're right. You have to First thing first, what I tell every graduating resident uh, is, is really go where you want to live. Uh, and other people have told me that advice as well. You know, you really still want to be happy where you are and you can make a life and a career where you want. So don't get intimidated. I mean, like New York or Manhattan, Miami is also a very competitive area too. So it definitely seemed daunting to me, like how in the heck am I gonna be able to start a practice? And there's so many other established practices and Bascom Palmer and everything in the area. But I think ultimately, you know, you will have success. Medicine is of course a really good field. There's lots of success stories. So if you want it, you can, you can do it. So I would just say, you know, obviously pick where you want to be. Um, talk to as many people as you can about starting a practice, like everyone who's listening to this podcast. Um, get the pearls down, uh, you know, learn about the different rules and regulations in your, your area. Actually, that's another thing that can, can throw a wrench in things. Um, I see you're nodding your head tall. So it's very true. Lots of little things like business applications, certificate of use, all these things. Actually, uh, David Goldman was the one who warned me about that. Like make sure that you know the lay of the land, where you're going, um, you know, looking at real estate, figuring out your budget. And then also, um, you know, talking to the banks, getting a line of credit, figuring out who your vendors are. I think just getting the lay of the land. And then the other big thing I would tell you is uh, making sure you know how to get on an insurance plan. I think that's the other really big hurdle is the insurance contracting nowadays, which is sad that that's the hurdle, but it, but it really is. So to set yourself up for success, um, really find out what the lay of the land is there. You know, is it better to join like a group organization or are you able to uh, get on contracts yourself and then find a, find a good credentialer? 
I think what you're uh, one of the points is that you've mentioned to me before is that you know getting a consultant is a good investment in that to someone that's done this before. They're not going to plan it all for you, but they can certainly guide you in the right direction to make sure you check off all the boxes. And is that something you did? Yes. Yes. Great point. I think having a consultant is invaluable. It may seem like a lot of money up front, but it's really not. Uh, making multiple mistakes and, and wasting time is much more expensive. So I think getting a consultant is, is really, really wonderful. Um, and you can bounce ideas. There's so many things uh, from a business business perspective that you don't know. Also getting business training is good. I did participate in the physician CEO program as well, right when I was about to start my practice. And I think that was invaluable also because again, unless you have an MBA already or have business knowledge from outside experiences, there's so many things you really don't know. And, and just getting the connections, getting the people to talk to you, finding your own network of advisors is, is really, really critical. I'd be curious from both of y'all. I mean, Sital, you've been, are you 10 years out from your own practice or? About uh, seven. About seven and Jen's about five. So, you know, I, I, there was all these myths that I had in my head about private practice, uh, you know, some true, some not true. I'm curious if there's been anything that, that you guys, either of you, you know, something in your mind that you thought private practice, your own practice would be like that, that actually came true or some things that you thought it'd be like and actually it wasn't true at all. Like, was there some things that you had some preconceived notions about what it would be like to own your own practice that that were just not what turned out to be not not the case at all? Uh, either of you. I would say that, you know, I was in a private practice before I was I was you know a partner and I sort of learned the ropes. I, you learn all the clinical stuff, but I made sure to learn just the behind the scenes. That's really it was actually interesting to me. I was learning it just because I wanted the practice to run well. But that certainly served me well when I opened my own. What I didn't realize is when you own your own practice, I mean, you really own it. I remember my first vacation on my own. And I don't know if someone called or someone left a bad review. And I, the whole vacation was shot. It was just, it was, I'm starting out. I had no reviews. And here I have a terrible review about something. And you just see that, wow, I really, this is everything I have. And now it's been deflated. And my wife will tell you about that. Just, you know, how many times on a vacation, all of a sudden a bad review, just like the two I've gotten that come on, you know, just when I got to this place. Uh, so that was early on. Thankfully, as the years go on, you build a bigger foundation, a bigger you know moat. You, you have more reviews, you have more experience, you have more confidence, and it gets better. But you certainly own it all. That, you know, you don't realize what that means, but so you do it. That's very true. And actually, along those same lines, you know, and going with your question, Blake, about what's kind of a myth. I think the myth is that I really thought I was going to have more control over my schedule. <laughs> I will tell you, you know, there's kind of, oh, I'm, the, um, I'm the owner and I can make my own schedule and I'm just going to come in at 10 a.m. and leave at four and I'm going to do that. Like, not that I'm lazy, but you you do think, okay, once you're the boss, you get to control it all. And it's actually completely the opposite. I feel now just like Tal said, like now I'm like the last to leave the office. And, 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 you know, I mean, it's all rewarding. It's more rewarding because you're working for yourself, but you ultimately, as everyone who owns a business would tell you, you end up working like twice as hard because it is, everything is yours. You know, if you want it to be a success, you have to put the time in. Yeah. And the biggest myth that, that, that has kind of actually proved true that I knew going in, but I just didn't know how true it was, is, is the people are the best part, but they also can be the most difficult part, you know, especially when you have lots of people, like we have 192 employees and working with people is the most difficult part because there's not two sides to every story. Let's say it's a technician disagreement or a nurse disagreement. There's 10 sides to every story. And it's very political, especially when you're the boss. Everybody shows you, you know, you don't meet people, you meet their representative, you meet their best version of themselves every time, right? 
And so it's tough because you have to hear out multiple things. And I knew that going in. I just didn't know to the degree that that would be. It's the best part of what we do, but boy, it can be frustrating managing people. And, and, and you know, I often try to think when you're trying to change people's behavior, think about how difficult it is for you to change your own behavior and, and then yeah. try to make that someone else's. I mean, it's very difficult. That, that's one thing that I've learned. I admit that actually proved true. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. I, people ask me what the hardest part of owning a practice is, and I always say HR. It's, it's really the hardest part. I mean, like you said, it's rewarding and you do get to know and love your employees and your staff, but you're exactly right. There's, I do feel like more, I'm more of a therapist sometimes than anything, not only for my patients, but my staff. So I always told my staff at the beginning, I said, you know, for us to be successful, it's not about, you know, you hear about, let's make sure the patients are okay. This, that, no, our number one rule is we take care of each other. That's first. Patients are second. It sounds unusual, but that's the only way we can be the best for our patients. It's sort of a backwards mentality you never hear in healthcare, but we got to take care of each other so we could be at our best to serve our patients. I really feel that way, you know, or at least equals if you don't want to give it, you know, superiority. No, that's a really good, good, good mindset to have. So, so Tal, you and I are going to be featured uh, on Rising Stars of Ophthalmology coming up next week. Um, uh, I'm pretty pumped about that. I have to come up with a good case, but uh, you are the celebrity panelist and I'm going to be presenting. And uh, Jen, that was kind of your baby, uh, you and Dr. Trattler and Dr. Agarwal. I just thought maybe you'd kind of walk us through that and, and kind of what was the what was the unmet need? Why did y'all get that started and how it's going? Yeah, thank, thank you. And, and thank you both for participating next week. It's, it's a real honor that you're going to be both involved. Um, yeah, no, no, great questions. Um, well, of course, as every webinar that's developed since COVID, the need was, of course, COVID. You know, there was a lack of of real live webinars and a lack of, you know, getting together, if, if at least virtually learning from each other. I mean, all of us uh, on this podcast and anyone, anyone listening to this podcast most likely has a thirst for continuing knowledge and, and, and getting to know their colleagues and peers. So having the conferences taken away from us and all social life basically taken away from us, of course, was uh, certainly upsetting. Um, so the thought behind it was, well, let's have a, a way to connect. My influence was, let's make it a quick way to connect. Um, so going back to being a working mom, I didn't have time to spend all Saturday from eight to five sitting in front of a computer. I just, like, it just, as much as I wanted to be involved, I just knew it wasn't a possibility. And I remember I sort of had this idea you know, and I mentioned it to Bill, um, like, man, I wish there were just like a way to get a quick dose of education, like something I could handle like 30 minutes or less. You know, that's like my intention span at this moment, 30 minutes or less on the go, something easy to just jump on and not have to spend a whole day or a whole evening dedicating to that. So, uh, and then he came up and him and Ashman came up more of the, the solid details on how to actually make it work. And, you know, they've done so much work in planning it. Um, so it ends up being, it's really like an hour long, ultimately uh, once a month, uh, but still a pretty reasonable time frame. You know, you can get like a quick, uh, high energy, uh, high efficiency dose of information and yet connect with your peers. It's still very casual and informal, lots of discussion, which is what we like at, at the meetings that we love, but sort of in a small dose, <laughs> which was, I guess, my idea and contribution. Um, but yeah, it's been fun. Yeah, I really thought it was cool. You know, when I got that email, I was excited about it. I heard about it in the first season. I've watched a few. And then I and I thought, you know, which of the uh, publication companies is behind this? And then I realized this is a low Trattler uh, Agarwal production here, which I just thought was fascinating. 
to make your own. And what Trump that that is really what's interesting to me is that you you know you saw a need and, and there's always a need for more education. That's sort of been your mission, I see, Jen, is that you know educating others and doing that. Speak a little bit about how you chose on top of all the things of doing the practice to also do that. Oh, on education? Yeah, I'm educating other ophthalmologists seems to be something you really do a lot. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, you picked up on a pattern I hadn't realized. Yeah, I mean, I also do um, help out. Um, I, I, I am like a volunteer attending, if you will, at a local ophthalmology residency program as well. And, and I guess you're right. I think it just comes from wanting to give back. I mean, so many people have taught me. And I think it keeps you young, it keeps you active, it keeps you engaged. And, you know, we never really stopped learning. And uh, I think ever, you know, the first couple of years in practice, I was not, I was a little more isolated, you know, hadn't gone to any meetings. And, and I really missed that collegiality. I, I was in a practice where it was just one doctor. So there was really no academic instruction or interaction. And I, I really missed it. And then when I went to my first Asperis meeting, uh, a couple of years into practice, I really realized how much I loved it. So, and ever since getting involved, you know, meeting everyone, going to the meetings, it's it's really just become a, a huge, uh, you know, pivotal change in my life. And I just like to give back and it's fun. I, I learn a lot too, actually, even, you know, from every Rising Star episode, I actually probably learn more than I, I give back. So <laughs> I guess it's a win-win. Yeah, and I, I love that you guys are teaching, you know, young docs, you know, so y'all, y'all, it's, it's a perfect setup where you have, you know, young people who are kind of just getting started like myself and, you know, people who've been doing it a while, uh, like that, like, you know, Tal, I'm not calling you old Tal, you're not, a, you're not old, but, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, it's, it, it's great to, to, to give those people a platform, um, uh, especially whenever we're not doing as many meetings. So, so I thank you for that. Um, Tal, the other thing that we kind of discussed um, that, you know, that, you know, you actually touched on this, Dr. Lowe was mentioning this a little while ago, um, um, you know, doing all that she does, but being a mom too. Um, and that's the crazy part to me is like, I, I see how busy my wife is with everything that she does. And I imagine doing her job and mine at the same time, it just blows my mind um, how that's even possible. Um, but it's an amazing thing. And, and I think that one of the, th the things that I've enjoyed seeing is sort of the, um, the, 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 all, all of the, the female ophthalmologists and leaders in female ophthalmologists getting together through all these different groups and how much that has really matured just in the past five years. Like I felt like five, six years ago, I didn't see, certainly there was always these groups, I guess, but some of them are newer and some of them are just maturing. So can you talk, it almost seems like a renaissance the past five years, there's been a great focus and a lot of attention and a lot of connection amongst female ophthalmologists throughout all these different groups, which I think is fantastic. So I thought maybe you could touch on that and sort of what you feel like the landscape was for female ophthalmologists when you started practice versus how it is now. Yeah, those are all great points. And you're right. I think there's been definitely more of an attention called to, uh, you know, unifying and promoting, you know, other female ophthalmologists and really just promoting ourselves and, and, and collaborating even beyond career moves, it's just really wonderful to have other friends. And of course, we can all have male and female friends, but it is really nice to have a group where we can help promote each other. I recently attended the Women in Ophthalmology meeting uh, just two weekends ago. And, and, and what I found great about it, of, of course, it's open to men and women, but it, it's mostly women attending. It just gives us a chance to, to be on the podium more. And, and of course, there's many women on all types of meetings no question. Um, but it's really nice to, especially if you're 
a younger ophthalmologist, like a rising star demographic, you know, it can be a little intimidating to go to the larger meetings and, and try and get on the podium against all the, the, the well-known, you know, famous stars and celebrities already up there. So it's a great, you know, way to, to get experience and feel confident and make a lot of great friends. And it definitely was one of the most fun meetings I, I actually probably ever attended, uh, just having a lot of like-minded individuals that want to do well and, and share similar, similar um, walks of life, you know, having children, husbands, uh, things like that. So I think it, it really provides a, a nice outlet. Uh, but, you know, certainly, I'm not trying to make it all exclusive about women, you know, but I think it's, it's been good that, you know, it's grown and, and we've gotten more attention. And, and as the numbers of women in ophthalmology, also in residency and in private practice, and academic practice have grown. I think it's a great way to call attention. Well, I think uh, that's, you know, it's impressive, you know, all the things you've done and all the things you've done at the same time. Uh, and uh, I'm cheering you on and, you know, cheering on all people who are in their own practice, like all of us are, uh, and people involved in industry and people involved in physicians groups. And it's really is fun to get together and share, uh, talk about shared experiences and, uh, do all those things that can help all of us enrich our lives and our patients' lives. So I do appreciate all the things that you do. And uh, we thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Lowe. And we appreciate you having you so much. Thank you. We know you're busy. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, thank you both so much for having me on. It's a, a real honor. And, and it's great to see your faces again and, and reconnect. Awesome. This has been another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid with uh, Tal Raviv and Dr. Jennifer Lowe. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Lowe, for joining us in this episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. This has been Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Until next time.